Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Um, I think I've been here like a week and three days or something. Um, and it's been wonderful to be in the homes of several of you and in the restaurants of several other of you. Um, it's been a good week. Uh, so I'm looking forward uh, to speaking this morning. Um, and I want you guys to know you've all been a blessing. Um, and I mean to tell you, it's been like three years since I've been here. Um, and it has been such a joy to return uh, to interact with, with the body. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning, if you'd like to turn there. As I thought about uh, what to preach during my time here, I found myself really wanting a passage that can communicate to the body my thankfulness and joy for your partnership in the gospel. Why? Well, because I'm standing here filled with thankfulness and joy for your many prayers, for your many emails, for your many financial gifts that you've been blessed to extend to me and Rebecca over these last few years. You're a blessing to us. Uh, and I mean to tell you, you guys were the last church that I was with before my fatal accident. Um, so I guess I didn't die, but it was fatal. <laughs> um, for the fateful, thank you. So one of the big questions I had was, what is the best way to express my gratefulness or to express the joy that has been instilled in me by Calvary Bible Church, by your kindness, by your thoughtfulness, and by your generosity? And as I looked for a passage, I settled on Philippians chapter 1. And I, I really believe that this passage instructs both me and all of you in showing us how Paul expressed himself to the body of Christ at Philippi. And I was visiting with Pastor Jess, uh, and he mentioned that a few years ago you guys had worked through Philippians as a body. And so hopefully this morning, as we look at these first 11 verses, uh, it will be familiar to you and will help reinforce some of those things that you looked at in previous years. Uh, so, before we read it together, uh, this passage breaks itself down into three nice divisions. So if you're a note taker or a writer, here's our three main points today. First, there's Paul's introduction in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, there's Paul's gratefulness expressed in verses 3 through 8. And third, there's Paul's prayer for the church in verses 9 through 11. Let's read our passage together and then we'll pray. Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, 
And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your spirit that leads us in truth, opens our hearts and minds to your word. I pray this morning that quite simply you would do the work that you've promised you would, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word, and that, Lord, as I speak this morning, it wouldn't be me speaking, but it would be the words of God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look first at Paul's introduction in verses 1 and 2. Look at what he calls himself and Timothy in the first phrase. Uh, I like to say he begins in humility. He calls himself a bondservant to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're reading in the ESV, it says servant. Uh, The NASB translates it bondservant. Uh, But the Greek word there is douloi, uh, which is the plural form of the word doulos, which is the Greek word for slave. This is the word for bond servant. And I wanted to focus on that briefly because Paul chooses to begin this address to the Philippian church, not by invoking his role as an apostle, but instead writing himself and identifying himself as a bond slave of Christ Jesus. We're used to Paul, who's an apostolic figure, addressing himself as that apostolic authority figure. In fact, Romans, the book you guys are in right now, and that I've interrupted so graciously, (laughs) Romans is the only other book where Paul uses the word bondservant to describe himself in the greeting. Compared to Paul's body of work, he chooses to address this church differently than his other writings. And I point that out because there's a true sense of humility and relationship here that Paul has with the Philippian church. There's a true sense of humility and relationship here. So what is a bondservant? A bondservant is something that was instituted back at the giving of the law at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's described for us in Exodus 21. Moses reiterates it in the giving of the law in Deuteronomy and addresses the same concept in Deuteronomy 15. So let's turn there quickly. Deuteronomy 15. And I'm going to do my best this morning to not just spend all my time in the first verse uh, as Jess did last week, right? (laughs) I'm sorry, man. Deuteronomy chapter 15. 
Uh, the law provided for slaves under, circ- under certain circumstances and required them to be treated in certain ways. Most importantly, however, they were required to be set free after serving six years. The now free man, for whatever reason, could choose to bind himself to the master forever. In the text, uh, it's described each time as a love for the master. The freed servant would then become a bond servant. Let's read verses 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy 15. But if he says to you, this is the slave talking to the master, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you. Then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. The picture for Paul here is clear. He is one of these bond servants. He has willingly bound himself to the ultimate master. He is not his own. He does not serve his own interests, but only the interests of his master, his Messiah, Christ Jesus. Those of us who are in Christ understand this relationship. We are also bound to Christ and serve not ourselves, but him for who our sakes died and was raised. Uh, as 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us. Uh, So flip back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. He addresses his audience to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at (laughs) Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Uh, I like this because it's also different from his other writings. You say, How so? Well, he usually just addresses the church as a whole. To the church at Ephesus, I write. To the church at Colossae, I write. But here he stops and says, to all the saints who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. He's singling out, this is this singling out of church leaders in an opening greeting is unique for Paul. He normally addresses the church as a whole. Pastors, of course, we're familiar with. They minister to the spiritual needs of the body and deacons who minister to the physical needs of the body. The point is this. Paul's humility and relationship with Philippi are again on display in the fact that he says also uh, the leaders and the deacons, the pastors and the deacons. Thirdly, uh, in his opening address in verse 2, we get the extension of God's blessings to the church. And here we read the most common part of Paul's greetings, bestowing to them God's grace and peace, right? And we're familiar with this. We just sang the glorious truth of the gospel in song. Um, And it was really encouraging. It, It lifts the heart to Christ to honor him and glorify him. The gospel that manifests God's unprompted, undeserved favor and blessing to us and offers us peace with God Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is indeed the turning away of God's wrath, establishing union with God rather than separation. And we know that Jesus' work on the cross completes this for us, his saints, if indeed we have tasted the grace of the gospel and believed in the person and work of the Son of God, Jesus That's Paul's greeting. 
his introduction to the church at Philippi. Uh, we're going to move into his gratefulness beginning in verses 3 through 8. Um, I'm going to read them quickly. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. These verses uh, pointedly depict to us what participation in the gospel means and that it breeds something. Uh, Paul has a relationship with this church here that's unique. We're going to get to this in a minute, but, but I want to define some words for us. What does partnership in the gospel mean as we read it in verse 5? Well, uh, I, it doesn't mean simply that they were born again for your participation in the gospel. We could read that and uh, possibly come to that conclusion. But I want to make sure we understand that when Paul says to the Philippian church, I am grateful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He isn't meaning simply that he's joyful that they were born again. Paul is saying here that his thankfulness and joy and longing for them is for something different. And we're going to get into that in just a minute. First, let's look at Paul's emotions toward them. He expresses his joy and thankfulness in verses 3 and 4. Paul's prayers are filled with thankfulness and joy. And notice the superlatives that Paul uses. Always, in all my remembrance, in all my prayers, for all of you, this joy and thankfulness toward the Philippians wasn't fleeting. Instead, it was abundant and occurred again and again. Look at verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Two, Paul holds them in his heart. And I believe this is the only time in Scripture that Paul uses this kind of language. Apart from his uh, close relationship with his true son in the faith, Timothy, and knowing the dear relationship that he had with the church at Ephesus, uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. He spent years in Ephesus in a pastoral role and was there weeping and praying with the Ephesian church before he traveled to Jerusalem to get arrested and shipped off to Rome. But apart from those two deep connections to bodies of Christ, the Philippian church here, uh, this phrase, I hold you in my heart, is as heartfelt and raw as we ever see Paul get in his writings. Paul's connection with this body was uniquely deep. Look how he uh, finishes his description of his affection for them in verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loves them with Jesus' love. The pinnacle of the description that Paul can give of his love for them is by stating that God alone knows the depth of it. God is my witness, he says. He loves them with the same affection that Jesus has for them. And as Christians, we, we understand that this, is, this love that Christ has for the church is indeed the richest, truest, highest, and purest love that anyone can have. A love that we as 
finite humans have a hard time grasping. A love that Paul mentions in Ephesians 3 as incomprehensible, yet one he prays for them to comprehend. Now, if you have an ESV thin line like me, you only have to flip one page back to get to Ephesians 3. So why don't you do that? Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 14 about this love. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Why is he bowing his knees? Verse 16, That according to the riches of his glory, he, that is God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, here's the purpose, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ. By the way, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's explanation here is that they can't comprehend the love that Christ has for them. But he's praying that God, by his spirit, would cause them to comprehend it. And Paul is saying to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1 that he yearns for them with the same affection that Christ yearns for them. He loves them with this kind of incomprehensible love. So it begs the question... Why does Paul have this outpouring of emotion at the beginning of this letter to the Philippian church? Why does Paul have all of this affection towards them? Well, let's look at the why in verses 5 and 7. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. There was an investment from the Philippian church into the life and ministry of Paul. Their participation in the gospel is broken down in three phrases. Paul states that they participated with him in, his, in the grace of his imprisonment in verse 7 partakers with him of the grace of the defense of the gospel and partakers with him of the grace of the confirmation of the gospel. What do these phrases mean? Well, participation of the grace of his imprisonment. This means that they chose to suffer with Paul in his imprisonment. We find, uh, as you, if you want to, And even if you don't want to, when you get done with the potluck today, go home and read the whole book of Philippians. You can do it uh, in less than an hour if you just sit down and do it. It's great. It's rich. But we find uh, if we were to uh, go all the way through the book of Philippians, we would find that the Philippians interacted with Paul quite a bit while he was in prison. There was a deliberate and a heartfelt desire to bear Paul's burden with him. And it worked itself out, not just in that desire, but it worked itself out in action toward Paul. Uh, And why I say that is because we can read uh, a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs and say, wow, 
the stuff that they're going through is great, and then we put it down, and we move on with our day, right? Here, the Philippian church had a heartfelt desire to bear Paul's burden with him, but it worked itself out in actual actions toward Paul. They showed this in provisions sent to Paul, deliberate communication back and forth by sending people to visit Paul, men like Epaphroditus, as we find out later, and prayers that they lifted in earnest to the Father on behalf of Paul. They participated with him in his imprisonment. Secondly, they participated with him in the defense of the gospel. Beyond partaking with Paul's imprisonment, they stood resolute in the fancy word that Paul uses here, apologetics. They participated in the grace of the defense of the gospel. They were firm in their defense of both the reality of the gospel, it's true, and in the preaching of it. They continued to preach the gospel. Paul is one of the apostles that we find in the scripture that had to defend the truth of the gospel again and again, and not just in the street or synagogue. Think through what we know about Paul's life written for us in the book of Acts. He stood before the courts of men. He stood before rulers. Paul, or Philippi, partnered with Paul in this grace of the defense of the gospel, relentlessly testifying to what the truth is. And I will add this. One of the starkest defenses of the gospel is indeed the repeated, consistent teaching of it. Where do we learn this from? (laughs) From Paul. What was Paul's greatest defense of the gospel? Largely, he would stand up in the courtroom and say, I am here because the resurrection is true. Jesus was crucified by lawless hands. I'm here to testify to that truth. And some of us, myself included, uh, are afraid to defend the faith because we consider ourselves not learned or knowledgeable enough to do apologetics. Brothers and sisters, that is no way to think. How many times are we told in the Gospels that the disciples were unlearned men, yet when they spoke the truth of the Gospel, people marveled and said, wow, and and were told they took note, these men have been with Jesus. They marveled that such unlearned men could speak such truth with such boldness. So I'd encourage all of us to take encouragement from this. Guess what? We have all been with Christ. Speak the truth boldly. Stand resolute in the truth of the gospel. Preach it. Thirdly, they participated with him in the grace of the confirmation of the gospel. The final way that the Philippians participated in the gospel with Paul was in its confirmation. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you confirm something, you verify that it is indeed the case or that it's true. For example, um, let's say somebody falls and breaks their ankle. The person who falls knows they broke their ankle, but other people are saying, no, it's just, it's just a sprain, right? Well, it's not until you go to the hospital and you get the x-ray and you pull it out and you confirm, see, my ankle's broken. It's not just a sprain. It's confirmed. In the same way, the church at Philippi confirmed the gospel, Here, confirmation is a word that's tied to testimony of life and character. 
It's basically a fancy way of saying that their lives confirmed that the gospel was true. Their lives proved the efficacy of the gospel. What they spoke with their mouths, they lived out with their lives. They were a changed people. The gospel accomplished what the gospel said it would accomplish. They were saved from their sin. They were separated from the deeds of darkness. And they now walked in the light. The fruit of the Spirit was evident in their lives. They participated with Paul in the grace of the confirmation of the gospel. Notice, uh, in all of this, I've skipped over a verse. Uh, Verse 6. In the middle of all of this outpouring of Paul's emotions toward them and his appreciation for their involvement in his life and ministry, Paul makes a wonderful statement. Philippians 1.6 is one of the most well-known verses of Philippians and one of the more well-known verses of the Bible. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And here, we get some good theology. God who has saved them and is separating them unto himself in his good work of sanctification will complete the work he has started. It's sure. Your salvation, my salvation, will be completed. It will be finished. And oh, the blessedness of that truth. And notice Paul even tells us when it's going to happen. It's completed at the day of Jesus Christ. We're going to pause here briefly because I think it's important that we get this right. Did Paul say that this salvation is complete when we die? Is our salvation completed when we pass away? You guys just had a funeral yesterday of a beloved man from this church. Is his salvation completed? The answer is no. While Paul argues in another place that this passing away or this death of the body is wonderful since we'll be with Christ, the answer is no. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that we're looking forward to a day where there is a physical bodily resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of that resurrection and when the fullness of the time comes, we too will experience that physical bodily resurrection. Is this salvation completed when we finally grasp a hard theological truth that we've been trying to grab hold of? Yes, I finally understand the impeccability of Christ. Or yes, I finally understand and grasp supralapsarianism. (laughs) While exciting and wonderfully rich and certainly good, And, owing to the Holy Spirit's work inside of us, biblically grounded understanding of theological concepts do not bring us to a place of ultimate sanctification or the, complete, or the, com- or the completion of the work of salvation. The answer is still no. We read from 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, if we could understand all the things of God and have not love, right? This good work of salvation and sanctification is only completed at the day of Jesus Christ. 
You guys sang a song, and I keep going off my notes, but you guys sang a song earlier today I hadn't ever sung before about the day that we're looking forward to. Is that the opening song? Oh, for that day, we long for that day. This good work of salvation and sanctification is only completed at the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ encompasses multiple events. And the point of my sermon this morning uh, is not to be exhaustive in defining the day of Christ. However, for the sake of our study, I'll just list two separate events that this day does encompass. The long-awaited day of the resurrection of the saints when Jesus returns for his own and the long-awaited triumphant reign of the Messiah as he takes the throne of David. These two things we know Jesus accomplishes as it's laid out for us in the scripture and how we long for that time period. And we look to that day because that's when we know our salvation is complete. Where do we go from here? Well, we have to finish our passage. So let's move on to our third point. Paul's prayer for the Philippian church in verse 9. Paul digs into application here for us. How does all this love, how does this grace and gospel participation that has been shown back and forth between the Philippian church and Paul end? Well, it ends, for Paul anyway, in a plea for growth. And he lists three main things here. And it's always three, and I don't know why. Paul pleads for them to abound in love, to grow in godliness, and to glorify the Father. Let's read 9, 10, and 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. First thing he mentions is, overabounding in love. Paul desires that they wouldn't be content with where they were in their love. He boldly tells them that he's praying that their love would grow bigger than it already is, that their love would not just abound, but overabound and be shown more and more, that their love would be exercised in superfluous ways. But he brackets their love with two words, He wants their love to become excessive alongside knowledge and discernment. In other words, it's a love that isn't blind or emotional purely. Rather, it's a reasoned, careful, deliberate, superabounding love. It's wise love. Paul desires that they would become more like Christ, both in showing more love, but in showing wiser love. This is my prayer, he says, that you may abound more and more in love. And I misplaced one of my pages. What's the next thing he gets into? I've kind of summarized these phrases that he makes into one word uh, called godliness. He summarizes the goal of this spiritual growth that he's praying for them to grow in. He says, why? So verse 10, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul wants them to grow in godliness. What does it mean to approve what is excellent? Well, 
To officially agree or accept something is what approving means when Silas asks Graham if he can go outside and enjoy the snow. Graham, if he approves, says yes, right? We understand what approve means. Approve what is excellent, what is extremely good or outstanding. Approving the person of the highest character, not just good or decent, or you eat in your Mexican burrito carne asada, not ground beef, right? You approve what is excellent, the thing that is to the extreme on the good side. With that phrase, Paul is desiring them, if I can summarize it, to be holy in their decision-making. Approve what is excellent. Be holy in your decision-making. Be pure and blameless, he says in his next phrase. Uh, And this is a little scary for those of us who know we live in sin and in sinful bodies. But Paul right here says, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is talking about being without sin in their mind and in their activity, pure, carrying the idea of an active state of righteousness. We might say walking in the light or walking according to the spirit. Blameless tends to look backwards. No sin being applied to their account, right? Who makes us blameless? Christ, right? And he closes uh, that with the phrase, be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And I I love Paul's food metaphors. Um, In Galatians 5, Paul calls this the fruit of the spirit. When you eat something, what does it do? It fills you up and satisfies you. Are you filled and satisfied with the righteousness of Christ that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness? Jesus even mentions this in his Sermon on the Mount. How does he say it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Paul yearns for this church to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ. So we have Paul's list here, abounding in wise love, growth in godliness, and he makes one final point. He just ends with the phrase, to the glory and praise of God. Don't you love how everything is always revolving around the glory and the praise of God? It doesn't matter what Paul's talking about. The ultimate end of everything is and always will be God's glory. Even in this plea to call Philippi to wise love so that they might be holy and blameless, or in expressing the fact that he is so overjoyed with them for their participation in the gospel, that's not the point. God receiving the glory for that work done in them is the end. So I will close with this. I picked this passage because I want to communicate to you, Calvary Bible Church, the blessing that you have been, the encouragement that you have been, and the joy and thankfulness that you have produced as you've participated in the grace of the gospel with me and now, as of four months ago, me and Rebecca. God's grace is great, so I'll leave you with the charge that Paul leaves you with. Abound in wise love. Grow in this so that you might be more like Christ in his decision-making, in his purity, 
and in his fruit. Remember that life always and ever revolves around Jesus and the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you uh, that we can meet together with the saints, that we can read your word, that we can pick it apart and understand what it says and what it means. Thank you for that work in us by your spirit. Thank you for the blessing that Calvary is. Uh, I pray that you would bless them uh, as you promised that you have with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Um, Thank you for their participation in the gospel. uh, And I pray that you would continue to bless them as they seek to grow in their understanding of your word and grow in their uh, overabounding wise love and, and all the things that we just talked about. We love you and we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.